It was about six years ago, give or take a year. Uh, it was in March, the first kind of warm day we had in the spring. You know, we were coming out of winter, and we had some days that were starting to warm up, but it was still chilly. And then we had one nice sunny day, and I was at my parents, and the boys wanted to go to the park that was near their house. So I brought them to the park for a little while, and towards the end of the time there, we started playing tag. So it was me, Micah, and JoJo playing tag, running up and down the, the playground and everything. And at one point, I was going after JoJo, and he took off and skyrocketed up the slide. And I went right after him, and I was determined I was going to get him. And it was then that it was brought to my attention, at the top of the slide, there was an arch. Yes. <laughs> and I smacked my head so hard. Went kind of backwards, landed on my butt on the slide, grabbed the slide so I didn't tumble down. Looked to my right. Mike is going... So, of course, I started going, did you see that? And I'm laughing, right? And I lowered myself down and spun myself around. And I was just sitting there for a minute, and the boys came over. And, uh, you know, we were running quite a bit, so I was hot, and I, I felt sweat on me, and I, I had a white shirt on, long sleeve shirt, and I went like this. Uh-oh. <laughs> ended up with a, a really bad concussion. Uh, I was on my back for about three days. No fun. There was vomiting involved. I won't get into too much detail, but... I think I just did get into too much detail, but we all make mistakes, right? Everybody makes mistakes. We can all relate to that. This morning, um, I started out to, to finish out chapter two of Nehemiah, and I only got through, I think it's maybe four verses. And so as we look at those couple of verses, as we kind of meditate on what they meant for Nehemiah and the Jews back in ancient Israel, and we meditate on what it means for us, I just want us to think about the question, what mistakes has City Light Church made in the past? Everybody makes mistakes. Every organization makes mistakes. So in the back of your mind, just put that question. What mistakes has City Light Church made in the past? And as we reflect on mistakes and, and how we deal with our mistakes, um, if there are mistakes that pop in your mind, I would love for you to share them with me, just so I kind of have a better understanding. I'm new to the church, new to the area. Um, and it would be helpful for us to kind of reflect on mistakes that have been made and ways that it's impacted you all. But again, what mistakes has City Light Church made in the past? Before we get uh, going too much, I just want to stop and ask a word of prayer, ask that Jesus would bless our time together. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want you to be the center of everything we do as your people and as your church. God, as I'm reflecting on, on what Frank just shared and the things that he learned uh, or was reminded of this past week at council about what it means to be sacred. And when I think about what does that word sacred mean, probably the lowest on the list is, is me. And yet your word says that you have set me apart. As your children, you have set each one of us apart. You have made us holy. You have made us sacred by the cleansing of Christ's blood. And Jesus, as we, as we come here, as we look into your word, as we sing our worship songs and give our money as an offering to you, God, everything we do, we want to make Jesus the center of it all. We want to reflect on all that Jesus has done for us in our lives. 
And God, we're just looking for that opportunity to share with others how we've been impacted by the love of Christ so that they too can understand how much you love them. And so God, we just ask that you would send your spirit now, that you would open our ears to hear from you today. And we pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, I want to begin by reflecting on learning from our mistakes. I don't think I will ever run up a slide again, <laughs> whether there's an arch up there or not, like I have a little PTSD. So we learn from our mistakes, right? Hopefully. Last week, uh, Sarah was blessed to read Ezra 4, uh, and I hope that you, you remember more than just that it was too long for a scripture reading and that there were a lot of hard names and places to pronounce. Um, but the fact that uh, the Jews had gotten permission at one point to rebuild in Jerusalem, and they faced opposition, and the wall remained crumbled in Nehemiah's time. If you remember, uh, it said the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and reopening the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. So the king had given permission for them to start to rebuild, and yet the, the opposition saw what was going on, and they didn't like it. And so they wrote that letter to the king saying, hey, you can do what you want, but these people are rebellious, and once they get that wall up, they're going to turn on you, and you're not going to get any more money. There's going to be no more income. So at that point, Artaxerxes put a, or, yes, Artaxerxes put a stop to the building. i got to lower my voice now. <laughs> and it would have been easy for the Israelites to have thought to themselves, well, we tried. You know, we got permission, we started to rebuild, the king put a stop to it. I guess that's that. They could have remained in exile, right? And remember, they were living comfortable lives. They had power, they had affluence. It would have been easy for them to just think, well, we tried, it didn't work, let's just move on. But they didn't. Dr. Warren Worsby uh, said, you do not move ahead by constantly looking in the rearview mirror. The past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. We must learn from the past, but not live in the past. In the midst of my studies, I found this old proverb that says, you don't learn anything the second time you're kicked by a mule. And I love that, especially having moved from a rural area. The first time you get kicked, yes, you learn something. The second time, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So having received a report on the failure to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, Nehemiah did not lose hope. He did adjust his thinking. He adjusted his approach to things, but he didn't lose hope. And we're going to take a look at why. Remember, he had earned the respect of the king. He had made a bold res uh, response, excuse me, a request to the king, that he would be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild uh, that, that uh, wall that had been crumbled. And remember that he used great wisdom when he didn't ask the king, can I go back to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was the city where the king wrote the letter to stop those people from building. He said, can I go back to the city where my ancestors are buried? He used wisdom in that. He was shrewd. And last week, we looked at the fact that God answered Nehemiah's prayer in his time. In verse 6, it said, Then the king 
with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will the journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. It's, uh, it was interesting to me when I, when I read that verse and I was doing my studies. It says, then the king, with the queen sitting beside him. And this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I was trying to figure out why would that detail be listed. I was trying to, to come up with what that means. Um, it's believed that in ancient Persia, the queens had unusual power in their kingdoms. They had a lot of influence and in decisions that were being made. When it says queen, it's possible that it could be the queen mother. In those uh, ancient empires, the queen mother had a, a tremendous amount of power as well. Um, but it could have been the queen or the queen mother. Um, but the story that I came upon, which kind of maybe indicates why that was included, um, I thought was funny, but also speaking of learning from your mistakes, this definitely fits in. So Artaxerxes is the son of, of the king Xerxes. And Xerxes two times offered open-ended requests. And maybe you've heard the phrase, up to half my kingdom, right? Kings used to say that. You can have whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Well, that's the kind of open-ended request that Xerxes had made. And those two times that he made open-ended requests like that, it didn't go well. So the first time uh, was to win over an intended mistress named Artanyet, I'll say. I don't know how to say her name, but, but he had his eye on this woman, and he was trying to win her over. And so he made an open-ended request like that. Whatever you want, ask me for it. And she asked for his beautiful robe, his, his beautiful hand-woven robe. The beautiful hand-woven robe that was hand-woven, in fact, by his wife. <laughs> Rut row. <laughs> so he ends up giving her this robe, and that's how his wife figured out that he was having an affair. The second open-ended request was granted to his wife, Amestris, on her birthday. She kind of figured out that this woman that the king had his eye on was put up to what she did by her mother. So on her birthday, the wife was given that open-ended request, and she requested that woman's mother and brutally mutilated her and killed her. And that sparked a revolution in the kingdom that he had to then suppress. It was a mess. <laughs> so it's possible that when it's mentioning that the queen was sitting beside him, it was an indication that this decision was made with spousal approval. <laughs> there was extra wisdom in there. There was that extra uh, decision maker in place. Back to Nehemiah. Um, again, he learned from what happened in Ezra chapter 4. He learned from the mistakes that were made previously. He learned from what the earlier attempts to rebuild, uh, had the opposition they had come upon and, and the things that they had experienced. And so he made his bold request to, to be allowed to rebuild the wall. And then in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So the pre previous attempt to rebuild that was noted in Ezra, uh, they were allowed to return, but the cost of rebuilding was put on them. So they were allowed to go and rebuild the temple. Sure, you can go do that, but it's on your dime. Here, Nehemiah requests not just that he be allowed to rebuild, but that he would get letters of safe passage from the king and that the king would actually effectively fund the rebuilding. 
So he's using the royal um, resources to be allowed to rebuild. So again, Nehemiah asked about the state of the wall, the state of the city of Jerusalem. He received that negative report, but he did not lose hope. It broke his heart. You remember we read about how he wept for days and he prayed and he fasted and he devoted himself to praying for God to change that circumstance, but he did not lose hope. And we begin to see why in verse 8. He says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah, we've seen, he's, he was a great man. He was a great leader. He gained the respect of the king, which was unusual in that time. He made this bold request of the king, which was unheard of. And he was granted that request. But through it all, his hope was never in himself. His hope was never in his abilities. His hope was never in his own vision. His hope was in God. His hope was in the Lord. His prayer, if you remember, his prayer was rooted in God's promises. It wasn't just this desire, this whim that, that he missed Jerusalem and he wished the wall was there. He recognized that God had promised them that land and that city. And so rooted in that promise from God, he prayed his prayer to God. And therefore, he had full hope that God would answer that prayer because he knew that his desire, that his vision was already aligned with what God was doing. And so as we continue to move forward, as we continue to, to spend time in prayer for our church, we need to figure out what God is doing. What's God's desire for Wilkesbury as a city? What's God's desire for his church in the city, not just City Light, but the big C church in Wilkesbury? And pray along those lines. As we spend time uh, in the, a few weeks ago reflecting on some of the hurts that we as a church have experienced in the past years, I also want to spend a little bit of time and just reflect on some of the mistakes that maybe we've made as a church, as an organization. What are some things that maybe decisions that were made that could have been better or things that were done that shouldn't have been or, or weren't done that should have been all those things. Again, everybody makes mistakes. Every organization makes mistakes. And we can't look backwards and dwell and look at the mess that we've made, but we can learn from it. I've heard uh, Pastor Don a number of times since I've been here say, the, the church has gone up and down over the years, but I just don't think God is done with it yet. I just don't think God is done with this church yet. I was reflecting on Revelation 2, uh, as John is receiving this revelation from Jesus, he begins to address certain churches. And to the church of Ephesus, he says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So if we look backwards at City Light Church, we will see mistakes. That's a definite. That's a given. But we will also see the blessings of God upon this body of believers. God has blessed this church, and God will continue to bless this church if we approach him in humility, if we align our vision with his and not force our vision on him. I agree with Pastor Don that God is not done with this church. And so Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah submitted his will to the Lord. 
He prayed fervently for rebuilding, but those prayers were rooted in God's promises. His prayers were rooted in what God was already doing. And he saw that the gracious hand of God was on him. And so again, I just want to encourage us as a church to pray and ask for God's favor to be on us. To ask God to bless this church from a place of humility. Yes, we want to grow. Yes, we want to have programs. We want to have so many kids running around, it's hard for you to hear me. We want to have teenagers running around. We want all different ages, all different types of people, all different races. Let's go for languages, right? Let's dream big. But we don't want to do it because we want to do it. We want to do it because we're catching a vision of what God wants from this city, from his church in Wilkes-Barre. And then let's do our part to bring that kingdom about. In verses 9 and 10, we see another reason why Nehemiah's time of prayer was so important. And it'll give us pause to reflect on why our time of prayer is so important as well. Verses 9 and 10 says, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So in verse 9, we see that when the king sent Nehemiah, gave him his blessing, sent him to rebuild the city, he sent him an entourage. And this was, this was typical of the king. If he was sending somebody somewhere for any reason, he would sing, send protection. But it also speaks of the respect that Nehemiah had gained from the king. Right? That he was a noble, he was being sent, but the king wanted him protected. And so he sent protection with him. But it also speaks into the danger that Nehemiah obviously faced. Nehemiah had the letters of safe travel, but he also had that, that armed protection to go with him. And it speaks of danger on the trip and danger that he expected once he arrived in Jerusalem. In verse 10, we hear mention of Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, who we'll see pop up throughout the book of Nehemiah as the opposition. They were in opposition to what Nehemiah was trying to do. They did not like that Jerusalem was being rebuilt. They did not like the idea that the Israelites would be regaining power. Uh, we know from later correspondence from, uh, from Judah to Egypt, I believe it was, uh, this man, Sanballat, became the governor of Samaria in 408 B.C., so that was a little later. But uh, Samaria is the chief rival of the city of Jerusalem. So we know that he did not like the idea of Jerusalem being rebuilt. Um, now, he became governor in 408. It's a little unclear of what his role was during the time of Nehemiah. Uh, he could have been already appointed. He could have been serving as governor but not received the full title yet. Uh, at the very least, he was gaining power towards that end. And Tobiah, it's believed, um, was the governor of Ammon, which was a region just east of the Dead Sea. And so you have kind of Jerusalem, once again, in the center of these two powers who were in opposition to what they were doing in Jerusalem. And we know that Sanballat and Tobiah were both very powerful men, and we'll see that they were very well networked in that region. So it was not nothing for Nehemiah to come riding into Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild. Both men were working together and working hard to stop what Nehemiah was doing. 
They ridiculed the Jews. They spread false rumors about the Jews. They continue to scheme. They manipulate. They use their power network to work against them. They try to trick Nehemiah and to trick the Jews, to trap them. And yet through it all, Nehemiah has seen, again, what God is doing. It's not his vision he's working on. It's God's vision he's working on. And so Nehemiah is able to fix his eyes on that vision from the Lord. And he's able to continue on in fulfilling that vision. Often when we think that we're being obedient to God, if we kind of come to a place where we see the vision God puts before us and we're working towards that, we make the mistake of thinking, therefore, things will be easy. If we're seeking to be obedient to God in this church, it's going to be good, right? The money's going to start rolling in. People are going to start flowing. We're going to, the biggest problem we're going to have is like, this room's too small for all these people. You would think that uh, Christians who are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very generous here, and say Christians who are loving and forgiving and showing grace, you would think that we wouldn't have enemies. But the scriptures are very clear that we will have enemies. The truth is when we are obedient to God, we will be blessed. We will be successful. We will have enemies. John 1, speaking of Jesus, says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You would think that the world would love its creator, and yet the world rejected its creator. The scriptures say the world is at enmity with God. We are the enemies of God. But John continues on, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. There are about 112 references to enemies in the Bible. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus gives the Beatitudes, Beatitudes he says, blessed are, those, excuse me, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in those two verses, notice, Jesus didn't say, If you have enemies... It was a given, it was understood, you will have enemies. Jesus knows all about having enemies. So as a church, as we continue to pray for our church, as we consider rebuilding the ministry of this church, we need to understand that we will have enemies. Uh, just one quick note, this is kind of another rabbit trail. This should be a whole other sermon, but I just want to make a quick mention of it. We need to be very uh, careful. It's very important that we understand that uh, we want to have enemies because we're following Jesus and not because we're being jerks. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but assuming it is because we are following Jesus, we will have enemies. 
John chapter 15 says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. When we follow Jesus, right, our whole goal is to become more like Jesus, to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And the more we reflect Jesus, the more of the people who hated Jesus will hate us. And praise God. Praise God for it. But the world hated Jesus enough to kill him, to crucify him. We want to be a church that lifts Jesus up. We want to be a church that makes Jesus everything. And if we're faithful to Jesus, the world will hate us too. And what a blessing. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a battle going on right now between God and Satan. Satan sees God building his kingdom in this city, and he hates it. And he will attack, he will spread rumors, he will put opposition in our way. And we as a church, we need to remember that if our vision is from God, nothing will stop us. If we fix our eyes on that vision that God gives us, the powers of hell cannot overcome what we're going to do. It's not just the world that hates you. It's the enemies of God. Satan is their leader. Satan wants to destroy us. Sorry, having a moment. I didn't think this was going to happen. but I want to ask, um, in great humility I say this, I want to ask that you would pray for me. First Peter 5.8 was written to pastors, and he says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Dr. John Walvoord was uh, a past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was speaking to a group of uh, students at one point, and he said, If you are a person who is teaching biblical truth, the devil will put an X on your back. 
His method is typical. He will start with your ministry. This is why I'm crying here. If he can't get you there, he will go after your personal life, your moral integrity. If he can't get you there, he will go after your spouse. If he can't get you there, he will go after your children. The reason I'm crying is because I've experienced this on some measure. My family's gone through some things. And so, this morning, I want to ask that you will pray for me as your pastor. Pray that I will lead you well. Pray that I will remain pure and beyond reproach. Pray that my vision, my ambition, the things that I want to see us accomplish is not from me, but it's me catching sight of what God wants for our church. I want to ask that you would pray for Sarah, first and foremost, because she has to put up with me. (laughs) You didn't have to nod that enthusiastically. Being a pastor's wife is not easy at all. Judy, no amen for that one. (laughs) She takes on a lot of the pressure uh, for our family life to keep us on track as a family. She bears a lot of the pressure of our financial health. Uh, I know she has a deep burden and love for the church, for the community. And we have experienced the attacks of the enemy in the past. Would you pray for my boys? Pray for Luke, for Micah, and for Josiah. Pray for their protection. There are unique pressures and burdens put on the children of pastors. It has its perks, but it's tough. And so I just want to ask that you would keep them in your prayer prayers. Uh, I'm the pastor, but another word for pastor is elder. And I just want to make sure that we recognize as a church how blessed we are to have Frank and Casey, um, how much time and effort and, and money and energy they put into the ministries of this church. Um, I haven't been here that long, but I've been amazed at all that they do. And so I would just ask that you would lift them up in the same way. Pray for Frank. Pray, pray for Frank. Pray for Casey. Pray for their protection. Pray for their provision. Pray for the girls, that God would oversee them as well. Would you pray for the leadership of this church? Those who are already in place, pray for our worship team. Pray for those who are involved in different ministries. Pray for our future leader. We're in a place now where we don't have a formal governing board. We don't have formal leadership in different ways, um, but we're going to. Very soon. Pray that God would set those people apart now. Pray that God would build them up and encourage them and prepare them now for the ministry he has for them in the future. Pray for one another. I hate to break it to you, but you are not exempt. As part of this church, if we catch God's vision and we pursue God's vision, we, not we, we will have enemies. Pray for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, for protection, for provision. Share your hearts with one another. Let this be a place where you come here Sunday morning and you're struggling financially. You have someone you trust. You can say, would you pray for me? I'm having this burden.
as a church, we will do our best to get behind you and support you in that. You're having marriage problems. Don't show up here and smile and act like everything's great. Find someone you trust and tell them, hey, it's good to see you. I'm a mess. Would you pray for me? Whatever's going on, we need to be a place where we're family. We're acting like family. We're loving each other as family. We're getting behind each other as family. Now I know that sermon just took a dark turn quick. <laughs> but that is the reality of pursuing God, is it not? The reality is, the closer we get to God, the more our enemies will hate us. And yet, back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Because of the gracious hand of my God, the king granted my requests. God's gracious hand is on our church. As we look back, we will see mistakes, but we will also see the blessings. We will see God's hand on us in the past, and if we just look around right now, we will see God's hand of blessing on us now. And so, yes, we will have opposition. Yes, we will have enemies. But we will also have God's vision before us. We will have God's protection around us. We will be protection for each other. And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. There is no enemy, no opposition that can stand against God. And so again, just as a church, let's continue to pray for God's vision for us. So that when the challenges come, the opposition comes, we fix our eyes on that vision and we push forward. And we know that God's gracious hand will be on us. We're going to take communion together in a minute. And I was reflecting on kind of the sermon, the message, and, and what it means to, to share in communion with one another. I'm a huge David Crowder fan. And I just wanted to read a portion of uh, the song, My Victory, that he wrote. And think about, in Nehemiah's time, the opposition that he faced, the opposition that was put in the way. Is it not super fun when your enemies attack you and God takes those attacks and spins them and throws them right back at the enemy? What is the absolute worst thing that Satan could have done to Jesus? Is strip him of his dignity, strip him of his ministry, strip him of his friends, strip him of his clothes to shame and embarrass him, and nail him to a cross and kill him. And Jesus took all that and then said, <laughs> I'm back. David Crowder's song, My Victory, says, You came for criminals and every Pharisee. You came for hypocrites, even one like me. You carried sin and shame, the guilt of every man, the weight of all I've done nailed into your hands. Oh, your love bled for me. Oh, your blood in crimson streams. Oh, your death is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. Jesus takes the opposition. He takes the obstacles. He takes the trials, the struggles, the heartache. He takes all of that and he turns it and uses it for the good of his church. And so, yes, we will face opposition. But yes, God will protect us 
provide for us, see us through it, and then take whatever hurts and scars that we have going through that battle, and he will turn it to strengthen us as a church.